0: Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. What we are going to do is continue our series, finish our series, uh, our vision series. And uh, today we are in Acts 2, 42 through 47, which I think is a beautiful picture of what we're after. It's a beautiful picture of what a gospel-centered community looks like. And the title of today's message is Devoted. I guess you could call today's message a vision for 2024, but I would say that last year and I'd say that again next year. Um, For me, uh, I, I always come back to this text um, because our vision for 2024 is ultimately nothing new. Uh, we're going to go back here in this text to the, what I think are the blueprints, and we've revisited this text from time to time since we've been here. I know, I know Josh has. We've visited this text in our groups, if you've been a part of the groups in my house or, or other homes. Uh, and we're going to revisit this text again today, and we're going to see all four of the values that we've gone over over the last month, here in this text, faith, family, following, and finding, all wrapped in one, all kind of converging together in this beautiful, fruitful uh, picture of gospel-centered community and, the, and what that looks like when it's functioning well. And what we're going to see is that the early church was not just a Sunday-driven machine, uh, because I think sometimes modern Western church can feel like a movie theater, right? You go to the event uh, maybe you sit next to somebody, a couple seats away, and maybe you both enjoy the movie. But I went to a theater last night. We went as a family, and Joe and Emily came along. We watched the first uh, three episodes of season four of The Chosen. It was it was awesome, uh, and there was a lot of people there. Um, I could tell they were enjoying it. We were enjoying it, but we walked out of the theater, and I don't know, and they don't know me, and we have no community. Um, I'm glad we have Christ in common, but ultimately it was a movie theater experience. And church has to be more than a movie theater experience where we all come and watch this thing happen on Sunday and yay, and you know, I like this part of it, I like that part of it, and then we, we walk away and don't have what we see here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42-47, through 47, which is faith, family, following, and finding, all converging together beautifully. Verse 42, which I think summarizes the whole thing. And they devoted themselves And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we want this. And not only do we want this, I believe the world wants this. Our city wants this. Even people who don't know you and even reject you want this. They want the beauty of this community. They want, they want, selfless love. They want to be in a a place where the people are caring for each other and and walking together in love as we see here. And Father, I pray that you you would accomplish this by your love and zeal among us by your Holy Spirit. We welcome you, Lord, to be active among us and accomplish this among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To borrow a metaphor from the book of Isaiah, God has called us to be, as a church, a city within the city a culture within a culture, a community within the community. There's enough anger, anxiety, and uncertainty out in the world today that people need to see something different when they come and encounter God's people. That we are a place of rest, that we are a place of love, that we are a place of care, that we are a place of truth. We need to allow Christ to form us in such a way that those who enter our community would see peace, calm, love for one another, and security in Christ here. And by the way, especially in 2024, because we all know what's coming. It's an election year. We all remember how bitter and terrible and bloody it was four years ago, and we can't expect the, the thing to act any different this year. So we need to be a place more than ever, that functions as a culture within a culture, a community within a community, a city within the city, a place where people can come and find rest and find peace from the anxieties and the pressures and the stresses and the anger of this world. It reminds me of this third century letter from one Christian to another that I've read before and even recently, but I thought it fit really well in this message to hear it again. In the third century, St. Cyprian wrote to a friend named Donatus, and he wrote this, This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high road, pirates on the seas, and in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds. Under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it all, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. And I am one of them. And I hope that you are one of them. What we see in Acts 2 is God producing God. That's what he does. God doesn't produce anything among his people outside of himself. That's why it says in Galatians, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what people in this world want? Isn't that what they're after? And 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, again, this is speaking of the gospel, through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter is saying that through the gospel, what he calls here, very precious and very great promises and in acts two is called the apostles teaching synonyms he says through the apostles teaching through these precious and very great promises we become quote partakers of the divine nature and that's amazing when you think about that we literally get god's spiritual dna in us what does that mean that means we begin to spiritually grow together out of that divine nature he's divine We're the branches, like Jesus taught in John 15. And God will only produce what he is in us, that which Paul called the fruit of the Spirit, which I referenced just a moment ago. We begin to look like Christ, act like Christ, and love like Christ. Therefore, the name Christian, which was not invented by Christians, it was invented by people observing Christians in Acts 11, and it literally means little Christs. That's us. (coughs) Just like a son looks like his natural father or a daughter looks like her mother, we begin to have Christ formed in us. And I I remember in my younger years, when we'd go back to Amsterdam, New York, where my dad grew up in a Polish neighborhood, Uh, I'd get around, you know, the old Polish folks that he'd hang out with in the Polish community center or the bar. And I'd say, man, you look just like Joe. Talking about my grandfather or you act just like your dad, right? What are they saying? I see something in you because you have his DNA, and I see, I I physically see, and and I, in your personality, I see things that remind me of your grandfather. I see things that remind me of your dad. And it's no different here in Acts 2. Like father, like son. We begin to look like Christ, and hopefully Christ and his disciples, as they matured into that family of faith that he formed when he was among us in this world. In today's text, we see what Christ formed in us. We see what Christ formed in his church looks like. What you might call gospel DNA working in and through a community of people. It's the building material for a healthy church community. And we see three things. Number one, their devotion. Number two, their practice. And number three, the fruit. So the devotion. How did they approach one another? Their practice. What did they do together? And number three, the fruit. How did it play out and what did it look like in their community? Let's talk about each one of these briefly. Their devotion. How did they approach one another? The whole text begins, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. That word devotion in the original Greek means steadfastly continuing or consistently showing strength which prevails in spite of difficulties or staying in a fixed direction. One exhaustive definition that I read includes this, to continue to do something with intense effort despite difficulty. So they devoted themselves. They stayed in a fixed direction. They showed strength and prevailed in spite of the difficulties to accomplish it. You get the idea? They stuck to it until it worked. I attended a Barna seminar a few years ago back at an Acts 29 pastor's conference. If you know Barna, the Barna Research Group, they're... um, an organization that sort of polls the church and finds out, you know, what does the church believe? What are the trends that are happening in the church and in culture and, and, and how does that come to play in, uh, in in the church today? And one of the striking things they said, and this is going back this is going back almost ten years now, uh, one of the striking striking things they said, and this is pre-COVID, was that today people consider themselves to be committed to a church has moved from four out of five Sundays back in the 80s and 90s to the 2000s and 2010s, two out of five Sundays. So in other words, when somebody says, this is where I attend, they, they, and, and they're actually attending, in their minds, attendance is two out of five Sundays. And Listen, we're grateful anytime anybody comes through the door of the church. Right? There's, there's no condemnation in this. But I do want to point out that we're not firing on all cylinders, and it's not consistent with what we see in Acts 2 if that is our approach, if we take our cues from culture in that way. Because what is culture like? I think we live in a generation that is conditioned to avoid commitment. Young men don't want to commit to women, especially, especially the responsibilities of marriage. We want, young men want the privileges of marriage, don't want the responsibilities of marriage. So instead of getting married, they, they seek all the privileges, the sexual privileges of marriage, the intimacy, all of that, and they avoid the whole life commitment, the whole person commitment that marriage is. People want to today keep their options open. Even the way we talk to each other in, in culture often puts our commitment phobe on display. Well, I, 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 might, I might make it, or let's tentatively plan on that. I remember talking to a Christian businessman a few years ago and he was sharing how how much it annoys him when his employees don't just commit to something. Hey, we're going to do this thing Thursday morning. Can you be there? Uh, Maybe. He says, just commit to it. Just say, I'll be there and follow through on the commitment. And yet, I think it's all a symptom of a culture which... Is, is frightened by responsibility, is frightened by a commitment to marriage or career or a certain academic path. And we, we always want to keep our options open because we feel safer in that way, like a, I still have an out. But that's not what we see in Acts 2, is it? They devoted themselves, they stayed in a fixed direction over a long period of time. The, t- the temptation in the church would be to not commit to a church or not commit to a group. I remember when we were in, in uh, Grace Life Church in Western New York, we had a family who, they were very critical of the church and always sent us ideas for what we should be doing for the church, but never committed to the church. And they said, we, we really need a group uh, in our area because you know, then, then we would be more involved. We said, great, awesome, let's do it. We started a group and they said, well, we might, we'll might we we'll try to be there. Guess who never came to the group? <laughs> it's just a symptom, I think, of a, of a Western keep-my-options-open culture that doesn't want to be devoted to anything. And I think part of that can be anxiety, and some of, that has, some of that has to do with a need for healing. Some of us, I think, need to be healed. I remember there was a guy in uh, our church in Western New York, great guy, loved him. He and his family started coming to the church, and we had a membership process at the time. And I said, bro, I mean, you're, you're functionally a member. Let, let's get you in the membership process. And he had a, a little bit of... Uh, Uh, you know, some bad experiences around membership in the past where the church required more than scripture does, which is never a good idea for church membership. And then once he wanted to leave, he felt like he was a prisoner of the church and the condemnation around leaving, you know, just became too heavy. So once he joined a new church, he was scared of becoming a member. And so I just felt like the, the Lord was telling me, just give him space. And I remember two years went by, and he, just, he, he and his family came to the church, and they heard the gospel, and we, we were growing together, and we loved him like a church member anyway, and, uh, because he functionally was. And so he, he came up to me in the foyer one Sunday, and he goes, all right, all right. It was almost like the conversation that started two years ago, just dot, 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 just finished there in the, fo- in the, uh, in the foyer. I said, all right, what? He goes, I'll do it. I'm, what? He goes, I want to become a member. I don't know what my hang-up was. I'm like, great. You know, so, and he and his family became church members and they were a, a huge part of what the Lord was doing there in Western New York for a long time. So I, I understand and I concede that there are obstacles where maybe there's past church hurt and we need healing. Pursue the healing then. Or we're anxious or we've been, you know, we've been wronged or seen, we've had bad models of devotion. Well, the wrong thing doesn't negate the right thing. And so we can't let the wrong thing negate the right thing, but need to pursue, I believe, what we see here, and that is devotion to the purity of these four things here in Acts chapter 2. And sometimes the most important things in life don't come easy, do they? The Spirit empowers us to live intentionally, giving ourselves constantly to the things that put His glory on display in our lives. I tell my kids all the time, and and as a a wrestling coach, I I tell our athletes, People or athletes who are willing to consistently do the things in life that nobody else wants to do generally have more success in life. Just kind of a life principle. If you're willing to do things on repeat that nobody else is willing to do, you can be average, but you'll look great. (laughs) You'll pass everybody else who's not willing to do those things. And the things mentioned in Acts chapter 2 might not come to us naturally, and I think that's why it says they devoted themselves. Because maybe they woke up some days and it's not easy to lean into that, especially in an environment for them of persecution... So they were devoted to it, they committed to it, and they, they gave themselves to it. Because it, maybe it doesn't come naturally, and so devotion is required. So we commit to these things, we devote ourselves to them. That's part of the faith. I believe this is good, and I'm going to do it. Legendary violinist Isaac Stern was once confronted by a middle-aged woman after a concert who said, I'd give my life to play like you. And his famous answer was, I did. I did. I did. They devoted themselves. And what do we see? We see the beauty of it. We see the music. Their practice. What did they do together? Well, like I said, verse 42, I think, summarizes it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. So let's see these four things apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And, you know, I mean, if you're talking about gospel DNA, there it is right there. And I think if you're looking for like a model to pursue, the simplicity of what I just read, you can build a gospel-centered, powerful, city-shaking church on those four things as we devote ourselves to them. And I actually believe these things are progressive. I think one builds the other. We are changed by the gospel, the apostles' teaching, and we find fellowship with others who are also changed and healed by that same grace. Then as a result of that, we break bread together and we join together in prayer. Let's look at each one of these briefly, the apostles teaching. That's a synonym, as I've said, for the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace and how that works out in a church family. In other words, that salvation by grace through faith is not just a doctrine, but it's actually a practice. And and it's something that I constantly look back to, to, to inform me for how I love and serve others and how I relate to others. That's why Paul and all the apostles often refer back to the gospel as they're giving practical instructions to Christians about how to walk out their faith. For example, forgive one another, what does it say? As Christ forgave you. What is he doing? He's using the gospel, the apostles teaching, as a, as a resource, as a power source to motivate and empower forgiveness toward others by remembering the forgiveness that we had toward us. Or instructions to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ love the church do you see what they did they constantly put the apostles teaching as the headwaters or the power source for everything they did and everything they became so they didn't give commandments without constantly referring back to grace in in other words they they drew lines to it and they said draw a line from the gospel of salvation by grace through faith into your life and look at how it affects how you relate to others if you don't forgive someone else, or if you have bitterness and you're holding on to anger towards someone else, or if husbands, if you're not loving your wives well, then in that, in that moment, you're forgetting the gospel is what he's saying. And so, they never assumed the gospel. They never moved on from it. They only moved on in it. As J.I. Packer once said, we never, we never move on from the gospel, we move on in the gospel. It's the engine of everything we see in this passage, and it's the engine of everything that we do in the Christian life. And here's the thing if the engine blows, the car doesn't go anywhere, does it? I crack my windshield. I could even pop a tire and go a little ways. If I lose my engine, I'm not going anywhere. The car dies. And by the way, that happened to me when I didn't check the oil when I was a teenager, one of my first cars. I started hearing clicking. Oh, what's going on? <laughs> I. Coast the car to the side of the road, it might still be there today. I don't know. It's... <laughs> but if the engine blows, we lose, we lose the car. This is, the, the apostles' teaching is the engine of the church. The gospel is the engine of the Christian life. We're constantly plugging back into it as our power source. J.I. Packer also said this, He that has learned to feel his sins and to trust Christ as a Savior has learned the two hardest and greatest lessons in Christianity doctrinal preaching certainly bores the hypocrites but it is only doctrinal preaching that will save christ's sheep amen so the gospel had the power to build them up to transform them and to unify them number two the fellowship that's the greek word koinonia means partnership spiritual fellowship It, it, it literally just means gathering unto the lord like people gather all the time in society right i mean every you know every friday night at at uh poor, what's a, not poor Richard's, poor Poor man's, poor man's, or uh, Gino's, or, you know, or different places people gather. What's different about the Christian life is we gather unto the Lord. So we're not just gathering to hang out or share a couple beers. We're gathering around Christ, and that can look A lot of different ways, and you can gather on a lot of different affinities. You can you can gather in a bar for Christ, like you can turn a bar into a church if you gather uh, in the name of Jesus, right? And you gather unto the Lord. But it's the idea that we're gathering unto Him to build one another up in the faith, and we're saying we're in this together. We're devoted to one another, and we're all drinking from the same well. There's a devotion to relationships in the body of believers. That's the idea here of the fellowship. That God doesn't just call us individually, and again, this is, this is something we have to battle in our Western, you know, highly individualistic society, to see the Christian faith as something just between me and Jesus. It is between you and Jesus. He loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said that. But a lot of the instructions and commands around the gospel and around scripture have to do with the church plural, not just the church individual. For example, when the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, do you know that that word you is plural. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now you can apply that individually, of course, but I think, I think the lesson that we have to get from this is there was a massive commitment to loving one another, sometimes in spite of one another, Sometimes we need to tolerate one another and our weaknesses. And Paul gives instructions about that and covering one another in our weaknesses and giving the parts of the body that are not as presentable grace and covering them and being gentle and kind and forgiving and and not letting the sun go down in your anger. There's all these instructions for the Christian about how to walk in fellowship together. And that's what we see here is they're walking together in fellowship. We might have nothing in common but Jesus, but we have the one thing that matters most in common, and that is Jesus Christ. Elizabeth Elliot said, Maturity starts with a willingness to give oneself. Tim Keller, who passed away a few months ago, said, The thing about a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be interested in you. I love that. A gospel humble person is interested in other people fellowship. We gather unto the Lord. We gather to build one another up. We gather to care for one another. Number three, breaking of bread. Uh, this, this is, I think, a, a multifaceted uh, phrase as we, as we kind of break it down and unpack it and what, what its meaning is. It, it means the sharing of resources. So to break bread means that you're, you're not hoarding bread. You're, you're breaking it. You're using your resources. Your resources aren't idle, but you're, you're breaking bread together. You're sharing your bread Reminds me of, um, in the Old Testament, Job, when he was defending his own righteousness, one of the things he said was, I have not eaten my bread alone. He said, if I've I've ignored the orphan, he says, if I ignored the cries of the poor, if I've eaten my bread alone, he says, then let my arm fall from its socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. In other words, if the instrument you gave me to serve is not serving, then it's useless, then break it off. God, but you know that I've not eaten my bread alone. That is such a beautiful picture of the Christian life, that we don't eat our bread alone, that we share our bread, that when your brother comes to you in need, that you regard that need in such a way that we bear one another's burdens. And if you think about the picture of bearing one another's burdens, it literally means you're gonna take a little weight on you because sometimes a need comes to you, right? And you're like, man, I'm kind of in financial hardship right now. If I help this person, I'm really gonna feel that. Yeah, that's kind of the deal. To bear one another's burdens means I literally need to slide under that burden a little bit and take a little bit of the weight of it on me. That's what it means. That I don't eat my bread alone, that my resources are not idle, I'm not hoarding them, but I'm breaking bread together. And if I could be honest with you, one of the greatest examples in my life of this is this guy sitting right here over here, Josh Young. Such a gift of hospitality and generosity and kindness from the day we got here Just seeing the gift in operation in the body. We felt it as a family. Some of you have felt it as a family. He's been a good example to us, hasn't he? Opening his home, breaking his bread, not eating his bread alone. He and Rachel. And I I commend him for that. It's it's a beautiful, I think it's a beautiful expression of grace among us. And it's a good example to us. So they were hospitable. And, And let me just pause and say, I think hospitality is one of the great missing pieces in modern discipleship and evangelism. That has gotten into being programmed. Oh, we need discipleship ministry. Let's program it. Well, Thursday, discipleship. Okay. We need an evangelism program. Good. Let's go out on Fridays to the streets and have an evangelism program. And we neglect, I think, one of the most beautiful parts of discipleship and evangelism, which is opening your home and opening your life and it not being a program and not being scheduled, but being a lifestyle of welcoming people into your life and sharing your resources with them. That is one of the great missing pieces of discipleship and evangelism, and I'll say it this way, your home is probably a greater evangelistic tool than this, than this room is. Or than some beautiful church building in downtown Clarksville. Your home, maybe your car, the resources of your life are greater evangelistic tools than the church building. Let's not forget that. That's all part of the breaking of bread, being a hospitable person. So it does speak of sharing of resources But it also speaks of the sacraments, the Lord's table, which we take every Sunday. The phrase breaking of bread was often used to describe the Lord's table. So as we read this text, you can even, if you study commentaries and theologians around this text, they're like, are they talking about like eating meals? Are they talking about the Lord's table, you know, taking communion together? And I think the conclusion when you take it all in is yes. They were breaking bread together unto the Lord, which is spiritually the Lord's table whether you're actually taking the sacrament or practicing it in community together. It's both, and we ought to be doing both. Breaking bread together is what you might call an ordinary means of grace. In other words, it ministers to people. You think of how many meals Jesus had with his disciples? I I don't know, he's with them for three and a half years. They ate, what, two, three meals a day? Count it up. Probably over a thousand meals together. Food, meals, breaking of bread... The Lord's table, it's all an ordinary means of grace that God uses to bring grace into the lives of others as we practice this on repeat. I remember when I walked through a season of spiritual burnout, severe depression and anxiety disorder back in 2001 through 2003, one of the, one of the darkest times of my life. I remember one of the things that I was encouraged as a depressed person, by the way, who was in ministry, but was taking time off from ministry and just suffering day after day from panic attacks and I, I just wanted to be alone and I definitely didn't want to be around happy Christians definitely did not want to be around that so we got a call one day and it was from a family who knew that I was struggling and, and, and they were planning a, a gathering for you know some couples in the church and they said why don't you and said to Heidi why don't you and Derek come on over and and uh you know we'll have you can join us and these other couples we're just gonna have a meal together and just encourage each other and um we took the call, we hung up the phone. And one of the things that I was encouraged to do as a depressed person was to give someone in my life permission to challenge me, to do things that were good for me, uh, even if I did not want to do them myself. And I gave my wife that permission in my life. If, if something is good for me, even if I don't feel like doing it, you have the right to order me to do it. And I, I'll never forget, <laughs> we fielded the call. I was like, well, if there's something I know we're definitely not going to do, it's that. And she goes, um yes we are. I said, what do you mean? She goes, remember that little conversation we had? I'm like, oh, come on. She goes, we're going to that meal. I'm like, oh, so-and-so is going to be there We're just going to be happy the whole time. (laughs) She's like, yep. And man, I went and I was anxious and I was depressed and I was wearing it on my sleeve and we go, we have this meal. It's a beautiful time. We were encouraged. I remember driving home just feeling like, I feel good. I don't know why. It's just an ordinary means of grace. We just practiced a Christian thing. I gave my wife permission to challenge me, right? And encourage me to do something that would be good for me. And in the end, God used it to minister to me as an ordinary means of grace. We just practiced fellowship and breaking of bread right here. These two things in Acts chapter two. And it, and it ministered to me. What if I stayed home that night? I might've just gone to a darker place. And so we see that God uses this. And finally, number four, prayer. They were praying together consistently the new the new testament talks about not just prayer but talks about agreement in prayer matter of fact the lord's prayer itself if you look at the first line it implies togetherness doesn't it our father you can pray that alone but there's so much encouragement to pray together and agree in prayer together and that god will use that I remember a story uh, from the book, uh, Reese Howells Intercessor. If you want to be challenged and encouraged in prayer, read uh, Reese Howells Intercessor. And yes, my son Reese is named after that famous Welsh intercessor, Reese Howells. There's a story that's told where he and the, and the students at his Bible school in Wales during World War II gathered to pray, and they had a sense that they were battling for the outcome of the war that night. There was just a sense in the room that, that they needed to persevere in prayer. Uh, because there was something significant happening. And they found out after the war, on that very night they were praying, that the German Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe planes were, were in droves heading toward London, and they were going to take London. And as those who were watching the radar saw, that the, some of the British planes had gotten shot down, and there was just a couple planes left in the air f- for the Brits, and there were dozens and dozens and dozens of German planes. And for reasons no one understood, in a moment, all of those German planes turned around and went back to Berlin. And after the war, they interviewed these Luftwaffe pilots and said, What happened that night? They said, You could have taken London. We were only down to two or three planes. He said, Two or three. There were hundreds. There were hundreds of planes that night. We turned around because we were outnumbered. The very night that Reese Howells and the believers at the Welsh Bible school were praying, and interceding for the the war. And and I think sometimes we need to recognize that yes God is sovereign, but one of the means through which God works in our city and the means through which God works in the nations of the world is the prayers of the gathered saints together. So as I said a couple weeks ago, one of our hopes this year is that we would sort of uptick our prayer together in our groups and there, and there's going to be some encouragement and prayer in these Sunday gatherings and also some different opportunities to pray together. Because so what we see. Acts chapter 2. It's part of the blueprint. It's part of the design of God's people together. Okay. So, we see, we've looked at their devotion and their practice, and finally, let's look at the fruit and how it played out in their community. And it's right there in the text, and I'm not going to belabor this point, uh, because the, the Scriptures lay it out for us beautifully. Let's read verse 44 again and look at what it looked like. All who believed were together and had all things in common, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Man, this is more than an evangelism program. This is a movement. This is not an institution. This is a movement of people who believed the gospel and were devoted to these things together. Not just on a Sunday, but day after day after day. Doing life together on mission together. Constantly reminding one another of the gospel that our sins are forgiven. And letting that grace ooze and spill out and pour out into the city. And that's our prayer for Clarksville. That's what we're trying to do here. That's what we believe God is doing here. In short, what we see in Acts chapter 2 is it was beautiful. It reminded me of an old quote from Francis Schaeffer, who was one of the key figures of the Jesus movement. He wrote about it and he said this, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis of the early church, apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and its reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but the exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. And now let's remember the gospel. Community was no stranger to our Lord, was it? First, we see it in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity for all of creation. Perfect love one for another in all of creation and perfect unity in the mission that was going to play out in this world. That God the Father decreed it, Jesus Christ obeyed it and did it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. And there's perfect unity in the Godhead. There's community in a sense in the Trinitarian God. Then we see when Jesus came to this earth, he saw community. He picked his 12 disciples. He had the 72. He was sort of a traveling church. He established himself in community. As we look at scripture, we see that community was broken in the first Adam. Genesis 4.2, after Adam and Eve sinned and fell, Cain killed Abel. We see the fracture and the brokenness of God's family and God's community. But then in the second Adam, Jesus, we see community restored. Jesus said, I will build my church. That means, the church means called out ones. I will call people together to come together and be a family again. And how did he do it? On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus lost community so that we could gain it. Jesus, in a sense, became a leper, a spiritual leper. And lepers in that day were were sentenced to the leper colony outside the city. And if they walked among any people in the city, they had to shout out unclean and everybody scattered, scattered because it would be considered unclean and you couldn't go to church if you touched a leper, not to mention you didn't wanna get the disease. And what we see in Mark chapter one is Jesus heals a leper. He touches him. Jesus breaks the law of Moses and touches a leper, but the leper got Jesused. Jesus didn't get leprosy. We fast forward the story to the end. Jesus dies outside the city near the leper colony. The leper, who who physically represents what we all are spiritually, is healed and restored to community. He's brought back to his family. He's allowed back to the temple. He's brought back into fellowship with his family. Jesus lost community so that we could gain it, gain it. Jesus became a leper and was cast out of the holy city so that we could enter in. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And He brings us together through the cross and through our faith in Him. So brothers and sisters, let's be devoted as He was devoted. But first, let's put our faith in Him and who, and who He is and what He's done. And let's be devoted, devoted to what He was devoted to, which was the building of His church. And the, glor- and the glorifying of the Father in the nations of the world. And let's take one more glance back at our values and kind of superimpose them over this text. Faith, family, following and finding. Faith, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Family, they fellowshiped together and cared for one another. Following, they orbited their lives around Jesus. Finding, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Beautiful. Let's consider some application. Number one, consider how you need to reorient your life around biblical community. What does that look like? What are some practical steps maybe you need to take to be devoted to biblical community? Number two, consider how to give the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer greater prominence in your life. And by the way, it's not a drag. I quoted J.I. Packer a couple times. One more quote from J.I. Packer. He said, knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a man's heart. I love that. In other words, as we give ourselves to these things, God has calculated our relationship to him and his people in a way where it's actually supposed to be your greatest satisfaction. It's supposed to thrill your heart. So consider how to give these things greater prominence in your life. Number three, consider how you could tangibly love your church family better. And maybe start with one. Just count by ones. Maybe let God move your heart to love A member of the body of Christ in a greater way this week or in the days to come. And number four, and I don't think I could be any more practical than this, and I'm not just talking to teenagers, put the friggin' cell phone down. (laughs) Be where you are. If you're in group, be in the group. Don't be somewhere else through your cell phone. These are, you know, God allowed the creation of cell phones, and there's a good use of them, and we can sanctify that for good use. But let's let's avoid the addiction. That our society is given over to to cell phones, and let's develop some good habits. Just this week, we revisited some of those things in our family and, and how we're not gonna be addicted to cell phones and how certain times we're gonna put it away. We-, we come home from Sunday after church, we put our cell phone away and we spend time together as a family. We debrief the gathering, right? We we spend we spend time together. If you're if you're in a group with a group of people, be there. Look them in the eyes. Stand there awkwardly and accept the the awkward that you feel when no conversation is happening, that's better than going away to a fantasy world through your cell phone and not interacting with the people around you. I'm not anti-cell phone. I just, I think we need to be careful though because our society has pushed this on us so hard and it appeals to every fleshly desire we have and the short-term attention spans that we have that we have to fight it and the idolatry of it. So I put it in there. Can you imagine the disciples sitting around the fire with Jesus and all the disciples checking their Facebook and their Instagram instead of listening to Jesus? Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.